This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. My name is Dakota Arsenault, and today we are doing a special Halloween horror, what you should be watching, um, either by yourself, with friends, with family, with your kids, movies at this time of the year. And I am joined not by my usual co-host, Andreas Babiolakis, but by a special guest, Rachel Gordon. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing, Dakota? I am great. Uh, it's, you know, mid to late October. I think tonight is going to be the first night that I watch some uh, some Halloween-y movies. I'm not a big... Me too, actually. Me too. Oh, yeah? Uh, I'm not a big horror guy myself, scary guy myself, but I'm a big fan of watching old horror movies. So uh, I think tonight will be the original Frankenstein from 1931 with Boris Karloff. Oh, you think? Mm-hmm. Oh, man, throwing it right back. That's that's what I love. I love watching those movies because you can appreciate them and how scary they were at the time without genuinely being so frightened. Because so many new movies, I can't enjoy them because I, I, I'm so... I'm that person who when I get, like, someone popping out or someone screaming, it gets me every time. <laughs> All right. Like, um, it really does. So the format that I think we're going to go here is because neither of us are going to be horror aficionados or, or any sort of authority on that figure um what we what we decided to do is sort of break it down into different categories um so we've got five different categories the first one is new horror so not necessarily movies that have come out in the last you know two three years but really anything from the 1980s on where what we anything really anything before 1980s is almost referred to as classic films at this point even though that's not really the proper definition so anything post 1980s is sort of what's considered new hollywood uh so i think that's what the criteria is that works for that and that way you know we can get some uh not completely terrifying films as well that we'll still be willing to watch (laughs) uh so what is your uh new horror recommendation so my new horror recommendation is I mean I think it's always a classic, but especially in light of the reboot that they are planning to do, is the 1999 some call original, even though it's followed some other ones, found footage um, film, which is the Blair Witch Project, directed by Daniel Mirk and Eduardo Sanchez. And so that, as I think most people know, it's a film um, about a group of students who go into the woods to document the local legend, the Blair Witch. Um, and they disappeared, but their equipment was found, and this is kind of the recovered footage. Um, Even though there were found footage films before this, this was kind of the first, you know, maybe we'd call it mainstream found footage film, especially in this horror genre, so got a lot of press for that alone. Now, I've been sort of avoiding that because I feel like that's probably still really scary. Do you think that that holds up? I honestly... As a, like, I haven't seen many scary movies. Um, this one I saw with a group of people, which I always find lessens it. Wasn't in a theater, was at a party. I definitely think it holds up in terms of the scares. I mean, it is closer to 2000s, but um, I think, you know, I mean, a lot has been done with found footage since then. But it really holds up. I think it's it's classic for a reason, aside from just being the first. It makes great use of, you know, darkness and kind of, 
um, not showing you, but telling you, kind of letting the audience's imagination run. And I won't spoil anything, but the end, I, I know many, many people who still consider this one of the scariest movies they've ever seen. All right. So then I'm going to put that on the back burner, maybe not quite watch that just yet. Um, for me, I'm going a little bit older. <laughs> maybe uh, not. <laughs> with uh, 1982's The Thing, directed by John <laughs> Carpenter. Uh, it's about uh, an American research base uh, up in the Arctic, and uh, they mm-hmm. come across this mysterious alien that takes the shapes of anything it wishes which means other humans animals and you never know where it's going to be next the problem is you don't actually know what this alien really looks like what i sort of appreciate about this movie is the whole movie has a real deep sense of foreboding uneasiness where it doesn't really rely on jump scares to to frighten you just the whole move you're like oh yeah something bad is about to happen something bad is going to happen something bad yep something bad is definitely happening right now uh although there is the one sort of jump scare during the the big interrogation scene where they're trying to figure out who the thing is at that moment um but then the movie kind of actually gets really sad towards the end and the ending is just like so deep and personal and oh it's it's just such a fascinating look of like what it means to be human and what it means to trust someone and it's just such a fascinating yeah. film i take it you haven't seen it then i haven't seen it i know that they did the um the 2011 they did a sort of reboot of it um i don't know if it's a obviously i haven't seen it. i don't know if it's a direct take um remake but i know it's it's called the thing it was made in 2011 um, I think the director was, oh, I can't pronounce his name, um, Matthew Van Heigenjigen Jr., something along those lines. <laughs> and yeah, I remember I remember friends talking about seeing it, but I never did. Um, I, I think I heard people talking about it not holding up to the original, but it actually is a movie that I'm fascinated in seeing because I think it's one of the, the early ones that's played with the now what's become a trope of this thing that can morph into anything and you never know who it is or where it is. So I like that. Yeah, well, this movie, the, the 80s version, is actually a remake of a 1950s version where they sort of transplanted Really? Yeah, they, they sort of transplanted it to be taking place in the Arctic. And then the okay. 2011 movie is a prequel. And the moment that oh, the, that movie oh. ends is when the thing, the origin, the 1982 version starts. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really... I like that concept of taking shape. I think that um, one of the more recent examples of that that's been put to really good use of you never know who it is, is do you know It Follows? Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it, but I the am familiar with follows? it. It Follows? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the premise being that there's this kind of sexually transmitted um, being that follows you and it can take the shape of anyone and you never really know. And that's actually one that I have seen is really interesting. I think that's an interesting iteration of this early example of the you never know who it is. That's cool. All right. Um, you know, both of us seem to be uh, big film buffs as far as older films go. Uh, yes. Let's. We were just talking about some new horror. What are some uh, older horror movies, pre-1980s, that you would recommend? Oh, man. Well, as and we discussed this prior to the podcast about how we could do a whole episode on him, but the great man himself, Sir Alfred Hitchcock, The original master of suspense, I feel like anything of his is good viewing, but particularly around the Halloween season when we're looking more toward the horror, I think Psycho and the Birds are great. Psycho having been released in 1960 and the Birds in um, 1963. Um, Psycho, for those who don't know, 
is about this woman who um, ends up in a secluded motel after stealing some money, and she interacts with this owner-manager named Norman Bates, um, and things kind of take a turn south, and the birds being about, um, well, kind of, you know, when birds attack and figuring out everything that happens there. And I find them both really compelling. I guess we we can start with um, Psycho and touch on them both a bit. I know, aside from just playing on suspense really well and kind of building up to this big reveal without losing the audience, um, not so horror-related, but I know it was really scandalous at the time because it showed a man in women's clothing. (laughs) And even though that wasn't, like, the subject, that kind of got a lot of press for being this huge controversial thing, and everyone wanted to know about that. But I just think, I think it holds up. It's a scary film, honestly. Yeah, it still is. I think Hitchcock made it ageless in the way he he shot and and, and made the story un- unravel uh yeah the birds I, I was saying to you earlier i think gets dated a little bit by the use of the special effects where Definitely. i think the mo- the movie is at scariest when uh the attic scene when um when tippy hedron goes up to the attic and all the birds are just sitting there because they're using real actual birds and they all just kind of turn yeah. to stare at her and it's just this very uneasy situation where We've all been there. You know, you're walking by a, a geese, uh, some geese or something on the side of a, the side of the road. And you're just like, what are these birds going to do? Are they going to attack me? You just have that sort of uneasy feeling because you can't control what these animals are yeah. doing. And, and geese are genuinely scary. I mean, that's not enough, you know, that's not enough fear to have. I mean, they could, they could come for you. But yeah, I do agree that it's more of a, it's more of a dated thing. That's more of a generational thing. But I, I find it kind of an interesting example of how something that can be so dated for that time period can be such a scare. Because my mother, um, who saw that when she was younger, she is still terrified of many kinds of birds walking about. She does not like birds. Birds that remind her of that movie. It's had that lasting effect on her. And so even though I can watch it now and be like, oh, I don't really find it scary the special effects it's lasted so much in her mind i think you can even go something similar to what jaws does as well uh yeah. where a lot of people who saw that when it originally came out are still afraid of open water and sharks and things like that and now it plays very much like your typical thriller where there is almost no horror in it or at least it does seem like that mm-hmm. to the average viewer that's a really good point. Yeah. Uh, and I think to continue along with your Hitchcock point where uh, I think Psycho is obviously the number one sort of scary movies done. I think he certainly has other elements and stuff like uh, Rear Window is, is pretty suspenseful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vertigo is a bit more of a psychological thriller. But yeah. I think there's still some some e- uneasy moments, especially when um, I can't remember the actress's name uh, is falling off the roof. Oh, Yeah. And, and things like that. And just the general mystery kind of leaves you a little bit uneasy at times. Yeah, I agree. It's, it, I mean, and I agree. I, I agree with the birds being dated again with the special effects. But I feel like in what Hitchcock does with the building of the suspense and what happens when, you know, the final hammer is dropped and whatever reveal is revealed is done in a really timeless fashion and a really smart fashion that, that you know, it just reveals how how masterful this filmmaker is that it holds up so well now just the subtle things he did to create the scares that he achieved so masterfully and i think what 
where other filmmakers would have failed, where they would have tried to explain the birds. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, Hitchcock just sort of leaves it up to your imagination. Not even your imagination, just explicitly tells you why is this happening, and there is no reason for it. Yeah. You know, you know, which, is, are- which is scarier in a lot of ways. I mean, if you're going for the horror angle, like, it doesn't have to be explained away, right? Like, this is happening. This is terrifying. You can't stop this. We can't explain this. And that's usually, uh, unfortunately, a trope with horror movie sequels whereas the original mm-hmm. the reason why it works is because there's the fear of the unknown and so the second time in order to revisit it they need to expand more why is the monster yeah. like this why is the killer doing this and things like yeah. that and it usually just completely ruins it i agree and i feel like even though it's, it's a lot of times it's responding to audience response you know we want to know why we want to know why i mean we all want to know why but then when we get it we go oh you know, like it can never live up to the fear and what you concoct in your own mind. And that's the magic of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as I go, once again, I'm going to go even further back than you. Uh, and with the film The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1920, directed by Robert Vienne, uh, which is about a hypnotist, Dr. Caligari, who uses a sonambulist, which is someone who sleepwalks, Cesar, to uh, commit murders. Um I was first introduced to this film when I was in uh, acting school. Um, huh. It was it was shown in our, our film history class, and uh, it's this German expressionist horror film that's pretty crazy. It, it's unofficially called the first horror movie. Um, oh, okay. There, it's it's kind of debatable when you're getting to to movies this old because a lot of the really old films have been lost. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, it's got this really fascinating way of, it's shot, um, the sets, they're, they're made, the sets are made to look uneasy, they're, it's expressionist, so like things don't look the same, the, the buildings are uneven, painted shadows on the grounds and things like that, mm. um, and so it's kind of got this, it, it throws you off balance right away. And while it isn't really scary, it's just like such a well-made, fascinating film to watch with some really good performances, um, by both, uh, the, the evil doctor and the sonambulist, the sleepwalker. Um, the two of them together have a real creepiness, eeriness together. And it's just fascinating to, to see such early filmmaking being so self-assured and confident of what it was trying to achieve. And then even the ending, um, I, I, you know, I think this is one that a lot of people should, should watch. Uh, they actually had to change the ending a little bit because the ending was too sad and scary at the time. And I oh. think, I think it, it, the ending that they chose still works quite well with, uh, with the resolution as far as trying to describe what was happening. I find it interesting because I haven't seen this movie. This is actually one I wanted to see. Um, and I find it interesting that you talk about kind of what you did with the sets and the painting of shadows and stuff, because I feel as though oftentimes in horror, I mean, aside from, you know, moving set pieces when it comes to ghosts, often the emphasis is given um, in many effective horror movies to the character and to the expression and setting is kind of a secondary force. So I'm very interested with the idea that so much is put into kind of the space and how it throws you off. And I don't think that that's a very necessarily a very conventional thing 
that's focused on in horror and i so that that excites me the idea of that definitely excites me yeah honestly if you just look it up on imdb the poster art is, is enough to kind of if it if that sounds interesting to you it, the poster is just going to jump right out and be like wow this is something that i need to see it's both okay. a work of art and a, a fascinating film to watch that is still entertaining i know i know some people try to argue that either silent films or foreign films or even really old films are a little bit hard to watch this movie's only an hour long uh and it moves along pretty swiftly and is just is, is pretty gorgeous to watch i feel like there is because the one the, the reason that i think of this do you ever watch portlandia i've seen i've seen some clips here and there so i okay. will be on the same wavelength so there is an episode for those who've seen portlandia there's a sketch where someone gets i think it's Redbox where you get movies in the mail mm-hmm. and they accidentally get a get a copy of this movie or a movie that's supposed to be this movie and they can never finish it and when they and the person who who comes to get the red box always asks them about it and when they finally finish it the person says i'm free and they become the red box carrier and i think it kind of plays on this idea of the pretension associated with this film and others like it and i really hate that because so many you know old films or subtitled films or foreign films are really great and i feel like sometimes they carry this sense of pretension and it turns people off and that's just so upsetting because you know it's just a great movie like just enjoy the great movie like you're not better you're not better for enjoying it like don't i feel like often there's this especially when it comes to those who, you know, are in school for film or something like that. And there can often be this pretension associated with like, oh, I've seen this film. Whereas it's like, no, just share it with people. Get people to see this movie. Like, this movie sounds so great. I'm so upset that I haven't seen it. And I think part of the reason I haven't seen it is that there's this kind of aura that comes with it of kind of oh the cabinet of dr caligari but it sounds fantastic like it sounds really great you know it's it's a pretty easy film to follow um the, the plot line runs pretty smoothly I, I i think once you actually watch it the pretension is is completely gone i think yeah. if you were to say something like nosferatu which uh is is another film i like is a little bit of a harder watch to get mm-hmm. through because it moves so slow and then all of a sudden all the action sort of happens at the end and it okay. really is a bit of a dated film it really shows its age at certain points um not necessarily with the effects just in the general of the acting the overacting of the silent mm-hmm. film nature and things like that whereas the cabinet of dr caligari um there is very little dialogue and all the dialogue is done through um uh screen um i can't i'm forgetting what the word is that where the, the title card sorry Okay. All right. Um. So it's not actually subtitled. Um. And it's so just, it's just of the time. It is. Yeah. But also because so much of the movie relies on uh the look and the feel of it and the emotions that you see on the people's faces, it doesn't. The story is almost secondary. This could be a film, a completely silent film, without any title cards, and you'd understand what was happening. Okay. That sounds really interesting. So it's a. It's a silent film, but um, very accessible in how effectively it's put across, I guess. Yes, absolutely. If, if you are if you are able to get through silent films, this should be a must-see, because I know some people are weird like that, and they refuse to watch silent yeah. films. Yeah. Well, that's uh, good. I'll add it to my list. Good, good. And, uh, and I hope you let me know what you think of it, then. I will, I will. Why do we need the dog? <laughs> it's not the dog we need. Right. What did he say? He said, as you say, John, he only chopped and drummed because he couldn't see the view no more. Was he mumbo? What did he say? He said, an edge is an edge. He only chopped it down because it sported his view. What's Reaper moaning about? Right. 
Look, I appreciate your position, Mr. Webley, but you can't go around chopping down other people's hedges without permission. Ah, no. Ah, no. Yes, I suppose. Thank you. Uh, all right, then uh, let's move on. You know, as much as uh, we don't really like scary movies, sometimes <laughs> it makes the medicine go down if there's a, a hint of comedy to it. Um, so there is more than enough comedy horror films to necessitate that it's its own genre. So what would you say is a good comedy horror film? Well, I feel as though I don't even know exactly what it's classified as. I've heard musical comedy horror, but I feel like we, I can't think of Halloween without thinking of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is, of course, the 1975 film directed by Jim Sharman. Um, just that classic film. You may have seen cinemas playing it, um, heard the people dress up and they bring toilet paper and certain things for certain moments. So it is this it's this very cult classic film and um, very much so because, you know, it deals with a lot of things that, you know, weren't common for the time, maybe aren't even common now. You know, there was um, the star was a, you know, sweet transvestite and played by um, the inimitable Tim Curry. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's such a specific film. And I think, that even though I love it to this day, I wonder, sometimes I wonder how it got such a following because I mean, you see it and it's just interesting that such a wide audience adores this film. It's so bad, but it's so good. <laughs> so bad, but so good. I mean, it's awful for so many reasons. It's just very overacted, and there's these ridiculous musical numbers, and I mean, the costuming is ridiculous, but it just has this amazing classic campy appeal, and I, I just, I don't know. I, I don't know many movies that, that, have, that have such a... Such a cult following as this one does. I, I think it really does come down to Tim Curry's performance. I think he knows what quality the film is. Yes. And he just absolutely overacts it and overhams it to the point where it's just it's it's more ridiculous because of him. And it just works so much because his performance carries it along. I agree. I mean, he's fantastic. Tim Curry is fantastic no matter what. And I think in this movie, I mean, he is... He is the true star, the true shining light throughout all the scenes. Um, and I, I don't know. I just think um, I think it's interesting to look back and be like, oh, this was, you know, Susan Sarandon was in this film. I think a lot of people forget that she was she was Janet. She was um, this wonderful character. And I I mean, very recently, as in I think even I think right now we're recording. It's um, Friday, October 21st. I think yesterday or the day before was the premiere on Fox of the remake um, starring act the actual transgendered individual, the lovely Laverne Cox. Um, and I've read a lot. I haven't seen it myself, but I've read many reviews saying that it's kind of a sugary. It's like a high school musical version of Rocky Horror. And I feel like. I understand that because, I mean, one, they're broadcasting on Fox. Um, <laughs> and two, I just feel like this kind of remake, it's its impossible. I mean, one, you don't have Tim Curry features in it, but you don't have him as a lead character. I feel like they glossed over so much of the camp in this attempt. And that's you can't do that. This film was entirely its camp. You know, you can't make a glossy produced version of this film because then you're losing what the film is truly about which is this you know this this truly almost awful 
awful set and atmosphere that just adds so much to it. Yeah, and I think the original sort of works because uh, not that the the movie is necessarily a reflection of the gay or transgendered community, but I think the the people that were behind it, it was a way for them to sort of laugh at themselves because at the time uh-huh. it was not socially acceptable to be gay and certainly not to be transgendered. And so if you make it so over the top, you can't help but laugh at it. Uh, and that's it's something that, you know, airing primetime Fox, you can't really do that because how do you do that, especially in today's political climate? That's so true. And I feel like, I mean, I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm all for two, to a level. I appreciate, you know, political correctness and trigger warnings and all of that. But I mean, something like this, you just can't subdue it because the whole point you're correct is this over the top nature and this, yeah, laughing at yourself, understanding that having this kind of funny, campy film involving the gay, um, you know, the LGBTQIA culture isn't making fun of it. It's, you know, this kind of hilarious celebration where you can take a break and not take yourself too seriously. And I don't think that that would that could really play the same today um, to especially audiences off Fox. But you know, for what it is, it's this just wonderful celebration that I'm glad has had this lasting power. And I know, you know, it's still is such a huge feature and factor to the LGBTQIA community um, for what it represented at the time and what it continues to represent now. Mm-hmm. Uh, for my pick, uh, you know, I think the obvious film for me to choose would have been Shaun of the Dead, but instead I'm going with Hot Fuzz, directed by Edgar Wright yes. in 2007. And it's about... Uh, an exceptional, exceptional London cop named Nicholas Angel, who is involuntarily transferred to a quaint English village and paired with a witless new partner. While on the beat, Nicholas suspects a sinister conspiracy is afoot with the residents. So the reason why I say the obvious pick of Shaun of the Dead is because that's pretty much the go-to that sort of revitalized the comedy horror genre. It put Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost all on the map. Um, mm. And it is really funny, and I wouldn't really say it's scary, but parts of it definitely kind of have a bit of a, a scariness, scariness to it. Why I'm picking Hot Fuzz is while the film is a bit more polished, which maybe that loses a bit of a, the charm that Shaun of the Dead has, um, it certainly is more scary. Uh, right from the get-go, when you're introduced to the idea that there is these murders going on, they're they're graphic, they're gory, they really put you at e- unease, and then uh, towards the end, when he realizes that it's the entire community that is doing these murders and he's running away from them. That's probably one of the scariest moments in in recent memories for me when he falls through uh, the ground and lands next to the skeletons of all these people that they had killed. Terrifies me. And I've seen this movie maybe like half a dozen times. Every time I watch (laughs) it, it still scares me. I I still jump out of my seat. Yeah, I, I I agree. I'm really glad you went with Hot Fuzz because, I mean, this is the second of Edgar Wright's, you know, Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy, and it is my favorite. I love Hot Fuzz. I completely agree. I really do think that it's scary, and I love how he makes it so satirical and funny, you know, when you find out the reason that they're killing these people, and it's, I'm not going to spoil it in any way, but when you do figure out the reason, even though the, you know, the killings themselves are really portrayed in a graphic and terrifying way. The reason behind them just brings this kind of 
very um, British style levity to the situation. I think that this is um, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost at their very best, you know, Simon, Pe- Simon Pegg playing this very straight man character, which is not always something that he plays. Um, yeah, I, I, I do agree that it stands up in terms of the scariness. I think that it's definitely, um, probably his, I would say scariest movie. I would agree with that. I think that he doesn't hold back in terms of the gore. And I, I also think that you can take something from multiple watches of this movie, not to say that you can't from other movies of his, but I do think that there are little things that you don't notice the first time around. And then you watch again and you say, Oh, I didn't get that. But now I see how that plays into the ending. You know what I mean? Edgar Wright is probably one of the best continuity directors in the sense that the, every time you watch it, like you said, more comes to you, more becomes unfolded. Everything, every line is a callback. Every joke is is referenced earlier. Every moment is something you can pinpoint to. And so right from the opening frames of all of his films, it's essentially there. The ending is in front of you right from the mm-hmm. get-go. And it's, it's so great. And I think one of the other reasons why this movie works so well is Timothy Dalton playing, uh, which is essentially the, the main bad guy of the film. Um, because he is so suave and charming. He's, he's ex James Bond. So of course he knows how to be suave <laughs> and charming. Uh, but he has this real sinister creepiness to him where yeah. we're much like, Simon Pegg's character Angel isn't sure if he should trust him or not trust him. And the whole time as a viewer, you're like, uh, you're kind of creeping me out. Like, I don't want to be alone in a room with you. But at the same (laughs) time, you're so charming and funny. I bet you're great at dinner parties. (laughs) <laughs> I definitely agree. And I think that a big feature of Edgar Wright's films is that even though that he has these very kind of over the top um, stories and narratives um, that are constructed amazing, but you know, and when it comes down to it, they are pretty ridiculous. But the acting is always fantastic. It really is. And not to say it's, you know, not over the top in some ways. Um, but I really think that these, they're great scripts, they're great stories, but it is the acting that carries it. It is, you know, that that subtle creepiness of Timothy Dalton where you're like, is this, you know, is this kind of a red herring? Am I supposed to think he's evil, but he's not really evil because his creepiness seems so obvious. And, um, you know, um, Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, obviously have amazing chemistry. That's why he keeps using them. But in this film, especially, I think they just play off each other really well. And even just the townspeople, I think he definitely, as you were saying with the continuity, he thinks over every aspect of this film, be it the setting, be it the shots, be it the lines and how they're delivered. There's, there's detail put into every step. And it's not in the same way as some directors attempt to do where you kind of see it, you know, but you see it in a way that's kind of overblown and you think, oh, that's been overthought. He puts just the right amount of thought into it to make it that much more fantastic without kind of drawing attention to the filmmaking itself. You're making me want to rewatch this right now. I know, right? Uh, <laughs> me too. I'm probably going to after this podcast, honestly. <laughs> All right. Um, now, you know, sometimes you're either with your family or you're with young kids or you're just with people who, who don't like horror movies at all. Sometimes you want something a little more family-friendly, a little more kid-friendly. Um, but I think there's still enough films that uh, that have a certain edge to them. And, and I appreciate a good edge to uh, to a kid's or family movie because – Kids don't want to be treated like kids sometimes. So uh, what would you say is a, is a good recommendation for one that everyone in the whole house can watch? 
Okay, so this is one that I think everyone can enjoy. Doesn't necessarily have the most edge, but I mean, in my circle, most people I know, this is like on their list. It's like, no, you have to watch this movie when it comes to Halloween. And it is the 1998 classic family movie, Halloween Town, directed by Dwayne Dunham. Um, And I say family not just because it's friendly for family, but it was broadcast on the Family Channel, made for the Family Channel. It's one of those. Um, And it's about a girl learning that she's a witch, Marnie, um, and trying to save the town full of supernatural creatures, Halloween Town, that her grandmother, also a witch, lives in. Um, And I don't know. I think that there's... I do think that this movie um, can be enjoyed by kids, but I think that it has the whole family appeal, I think for parents, but particularly um, for that kind of Disney made for Disney movie generation, because it's the kind of movie that it has a bit of hokiness to it. Um, It's definitely made for kids, but it's also there's, there's definitely a genuine element to it that I think can be enjoyed by everyone. I think that it is, one of those called classics in a different way than Rocky Horror, but in that you can watch it every year and it's still enjoyable, even though you're not a kid anymore. It really, it brings back that sense of nostalgia for the days when you were a kid and watch movies like this. So I, I, I think it holds up in that way. You know, I can say I've honestly never heard of this movie. <gasps> oh my goodness. That is a stake through my heart. <laughs> this is, this, oh, I love this movie. I like, if I ever have kids, I'm just going to sit them down and be like, okay, this is a movie the mom is going to show you, and you're going to love this movie, because if you don't, it will break my heart. <laughs> go, here you go. It's 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 very, it's very, um, it's definitely a kid's movie, you know. So Marnie follows her grandmother to this town where she lives year-round, which is called Halloween Town, and everyone populating the towns are monsters and ghouls, but they all, you know, get along. The costuming is in no ways meant to be um, realistic. You know, it's very, it's very costumey, and there's this, there's this evil force who's trying to turn, turn people against each other. I do think that it has enough edge to, to, to possibly scare a kid. I do think that. I do think that you see kind of these monsters get a creepier look and start acting in a nasty way, and I, and I do think that it's something that kids would be kind of like, oh, geez. But I think as an adult, it's just, it's just a really fun nostalgia film. I just love it. It just brings me right back. <laughs> well, it does have Debbie Reynolds as the grandmother, so I think that's interesting. And you know, for the serious film buffs, singing in the rain, Debbie Reynolds. There you go. There's the connection. Go watch Halloween Town. Go do it if you like singing in the rain. This is for you. I like both, so I can say that. <laughs> All right. Um, for me, uh, I, I think. Once again, I think I'm always going to preface these with what the obvious choice usually would be. The obvious choice is usually something like uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. I think that's mm-hmm. a, a, a fantastic film. Um, although I'm not a diehard fan like a lot of people are, I, I think it kind of sags at some point. And yeah, that's not one of my classics. I don't think that that's that's his best work with stop motion even. Yeah, it, it sort of the film's legacy i feel rides too high on just a few scenes being really great and the rest of the mm-hmm. film just being kind of mediocre yeah i agree uh so my pick in a sort of similar style is uh the 2012 film paranorman uh which mm-hmm. was direct- directed by chris butler and sam fell and it's about a misunderstood boy who takes on ghosts zombies and grown-ups to save his town from a centuries-old curse um this 
is a stop motion claymation film made by the same people who did Coraline, which is also really freaky, uh, and the box trolls. So they have a really good record of making these sort of family friendly films that have an edge to them, uh, and treat their, their audience with respect. And I, I think this is, this film probably more than all the others definitely treats the audience with a lot of respect. Um, there's parts of it, it, it gets really scary towards the end. It's about this young boy trying to lift the curse of this young girl who's cursed the town. And so when he confronts this young girl at the end, who's centuries old, it genuinely gets kind of terrifying when the whole town is basically on fire and the earth is splitting apart and she's coming through and screaming at him. It's pretty terrifying, uh, especially for a kid watching it. They, they probably have trouble sleeping at night, but. Yeah, see. Wait, keep going, keep going. I, I, I was just going to say, but I think, you know, it's a well-deserved finish. It's not like it just comes out of nowhere to to terrify the pants off of kids. Um, it's well-earned. The suspense is built up. Every other moment throughout the film when it gets sort of suspenseful, there's usually a good punchline to sort of set you at ease and sort of remind yourself, hey, I am still watching a, a kid-friendly movie. There is still some silly fart jokes in this as well and <laughs> what have you. Um, but I think it also has like a really good message through it as well. You know, the way he, he defeats this uh, ghost is by understanding her and listening to her. And there's a character um his older i think it's his friend's older brother or something like that who about three quarters of the way through the movie reveals that he's gay and oh you mean the very jockey male yeah and so it, yeah it sort of completely overturns the expectation of this big dumb jock especially since the whole movie the other young female character is pining after him the whole time only to turn around and realize hey he's gay and no one cares. It's just an accepted reality of who this is, except for the girl who's now heartbroken because <laughs> she can't get with her the man of her dream sort of thing. Yeah, I shockingly haven't seen this movie, which is, it is shocking for me because I love Leica, the production company behind it. Um, and I'm almost, I'm also thinking, I'm, I'm surprised I didn't go this um, kind of claymation route because there's so much there. I love, I love um, the the concept and I really do want to see this movie. It reminds me of another one that I briefly thought of um, for this category, but actually thought was too scary, which is 2012's Frankenweenie, which is another Tim Burton. Um, and I actually, I thought that that's another one similar, but that one I actually find in a similar way that you're saying Paranorman is genuinely scary at that moment. I found Frankenweenie scary to a point where I was like, I shouldn't recommend this to kids. So you know, I feel like it's finding that balance. You know, it's odd. This came out the same year and they're both nominated for, uh, for the best animated Oscar, which Frankenweenie ended up winning, which I was actually kind of disappointed because I thought all of the hype went to Frankenweenie because it seems like every year there's like one animated movie that us as adults are allowed to take seriously and enjoy yeah. and say we love it. And that year it was Frankenweenie. I felt that that film, well, it's probably not good for maybe the kids that are 10 and under. If you're in the preteen, teenage years, that seemed like that was maybe sort of the target demographic with mm -hmm. your parents being able to watch it and enjoy it as well. I thought it was a little too self-serving and being, hey, and now we're referencing Dracula and now we're referencing yeah. Frankenstein, where it was a little too on the nose with what its references were supposed to be that I think the kids that the target audience were weren't well, going to really understand that. anyways. Yeah, I, I think... 
And I think there's something to be said for some real originality with, you know, more subtle references, like not a, not a film necessarily, but the recent Stranger Things, which I think could be enjoyed by kids and adults alike. Maybe a bit scary, but you know. Um, that was and terrifying I think, for me. Yeah, it's, that can be scary at times. And I think that that's an example that I think is similar to probably what Paranorman brings to the table and many good kids movies um, bring to the table, which is, you know, having references maybe built in and acknowledging them subtly, but not in an overt way where you're alienating your audience, which is kids. You know, kids don't necessarily have this huge encyclopedia of filmic knowledge built up, right? So it's great to have these references in your work and sometimes be able to acknowledge them, especially for the adults in the audience. But again, not in a way that takes away from the viewer who's watching it. And suddenly the kid's like, I don't, I don't know about that. What are you talking about? What are they talking about, right? You'd want to be taken out of the movie in that way Mm -hmm. i agree uh and and the animation this is just absolutely beautiful so even Mm -hmm. even a fan of that uh it's definitely worth a watch yeah i'm a big animation buff so i'm i might watch this before i watch hot fuzz i'm i've I've need to watch paranorman for a bit so i think this is a good enough reason as any Meet Norman. Can't you be like other kids your age? His parents don't get him. He's probably up there fiddling with his Ouija or his orb. Mary. His sister doesn't like him. <laughs> you are such a loser. And the kids at school. Look, it's abnormal. Always pick on him. <laughs> but he does have some friends. Norman, wait up. I like to be alone. So do I. Let's do it together. It's just that most of them... Good morning. ...aren't exactly alive. How's it hanging? <gasps> Haven't heard that one before. Do you see ghosts, like, all the time? <gasps> all right, good. Uh, all right, so last on our list is, uh, you know, there there's different kinds of horror films. There's the comedy. There's the family-friendly. But sometimes there's also just the straight-up thrillers, which are kind of scary, whether that be a psychological thriller or a more surface level type of thriller uh, or action thriller uh, those can have some pretty intense and scary moments of themselves without being a, a quote unquote genre film um, so what is your thriller of choice so my thriller of choice is a bit of a genre film but it kind of separates itself in that it's known for a certain sense of parody um, a certain sense of satire of the genre itself without being a comedy, and that is the 1996 Wes Craven film Scream, which, you know, for many people is a Halloween classic. And so um, it follows this girl named Sydney, and she's attempting to cope with her mother's mysterious murder, um, and suddenly her horror movie-obsessed friends are being stalked by this unknown killer um, who seems to have a hard time of letting the past go. And so, again, this is... This is, you know, where the um, the scream mask, which is sold in many places, became became so big, bigger than um, its inspiration of scream, um, as in the painting, um, kind of transferred this new meaning because that's what the killers would wear, which is this elongated white mask with the the large mouth and the eyes. Um, I thought this movie was quite scary. It doesn't shy away much from the gore, I would say, in the killings, um, and it has, not to spoil anything, but the psychological aspects, particularly particularly near the end when the killer is revealed, are truly disturbing. There is a lot of, you know, there's there are some very disturbing elements um, when it comes to 
motivations and um, kind of the implications of killing someone and whether or not someone really feels that, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of a sociopath vibe that goes along with this film that makes it, you know, scarier than your, you know, typical killer with a, with a, um, with a monkey on his back, I think. So I, I, for me, this is perhaps less scary now. um, But I, I, I do still get a scare every time I see it, if only for that real psychological psychopath, sociopath element. I, I feel like I'm a little ashamed to say that I've never seen it, but at the same time, it's so culturally relevant and yeah. in pop culture that it's impossible to not know it everything that sort of happens, especially if you've seen like the scary movie films, which I was a big fan of the early ones where it was almost shot for shot, a direct parody of scream. Yeah, it is. It is a very, as I honestly think as with many, we've discussed tonight, it is a very culturally referenced comes up again and again type of movie. I think this one for good reason. I think it did something that hasn't been done before with the horror in bringing in a bit of satire. You know, you have this one character in particular, um, kind of a nerdy guy who knows everything about horror movies. And in a lot of key parts, he's kind of talking about these tropes that later play out in the movie. It's kind of a nod to its own creation. Not quite a fourth wall break, but something approaching that. Um, and I think that it, I think that it's also a well done film in the way that there is an obvious ending and the film refuses to go there. Um, so I think that personally, when I watched it, I was, there were about two people who I was like, oh, it's one of, one of these or the other of these, and these are the reasons. And I was just completely, I was completely wrong. I was completely, completely wrong. And again, it was scarier to me because the person behind it maybe didn't have as much of a reason as you would have expected. Um, and it just brings a new layer to the film where you're like, oh, okay, you know, this, whoever the killer is, is just kind of going around and killing people and doesn't necessarily have a big purpose behind it, which is usually, you know, in thrillers or in scary movies, the big reveal is, oh, the, you know, when it's not a monster, when it's a killer, it's kind of like, oh, this is the backstory. This is why I did it. And so I feel that when you take it away, it makes it scarier for me because it's like, no, this is just a deeply disturbed individual. They probably they don't really have a reason for doing this. They're just going out and doing it. And it's it's like we were saying with the birds, when you're not given a clear reason behind something, it's disturbing. It's unsettling. You want to be able to have that closure and it doesn't give it to you. All right. Um, For mine, uh, I went with uh, the the David Fincher film Zodiac, um, which came out. uh, Oh, I'm blanking on when that came out. Uh, I'm searching it up right now. 2007? 2007, that's right. Um, Yeah, the 2007 David Fincher film Zodiac, which is about um, the Zodiac killer in San Francisco, but it's more about uh, a San Francisco cartoonist who becomes an amateur detective obsessed with tracking down the killer. Uh, I would actually say that this is David Fincher's best film as far as... Really? As far as his most complete vision, it is is end-to-end a masterpiece, superbly directed, acted, and everything else. The only other one that i think would it, it would come close to is the social network and i really don't want to have to pick between the two of them mm-hmm. uh but i like them for very different reasons zodiac is is sort of a it's an absolutely terrifying film because it plays with your head the whole time because 
we're sort of seeing everything not really through the killer. We barely see the killer. We don't actually know who the killer is, in fact, uh, obviously because it's an unsolved mystery. So instead of casting someone to be the killer, he just lets it run with her imagination. And uh, and so you have Robert Downey Jr. and Jake Gyllenhaal sort of working together and Mark Ruffalo as well. So it's the three of them trying to figure out what's going on and who this is and track the case before more people die. And then there's this great terrifying scene when Robert Downey Jr. realizes that he, he has a lead on who this might be. So he goes to this guy's house who used to make movie posters uh, and then all the movie posters are in his basement. And then he realizes that San Francisco doesn't have basements because they're on a fault line. Uh, and the Zodiac killer apparently had a basement. So he's going down there and there's this creepy old man. And then all of a sudden he has to figure out a way to get out. And you're not sure what's going to happen. Is he going to get murdered? What's going on? And you're just on the absolute edge of your seat. And it's still kind of brings chills to me where i'm like all right i need to i need to settle down after this movie and maybe watch uh, an episode of something funny one of those where you're like okay i need a break now yeah pretty much uh and i think this really works because of, of downey juniors and uh and Jillian Hall's commitment to it. This was sort of right at the time where, where Downey Jr. was coming back into favor of Hollywood. So mm. He still had a bit of an uneasiness to him. He wasn't the likable, roguish, charming man we know today. Um, and Jake Gyllenhaal was sort of just being taken seriously at the time. You know, he, he, was, he yeah. was sort of taken seriously, but then he wasn't again. And then now he was back at that point where he was. And I think the two of them were both very hungry to be taken seriously as lead in the and they really sell their performances i actually haven't seen this one hearing you say that it's the best adventure makes me really want to see it um i also think that it's again one of those ones with an air of mystery that makes it disturbing as it is based on this nonfiction true story of the zodiac killer um and someone who still to this day i don't believe was ever found we never really found who it was um and I mean, that nonfiction element always brings an added layer of terror because you watch this movie and then you're sitting there and you're like, you know, the Zodiac killer could be my neighbor. Like, who knows? Right. <laughs> there is there is the element of continued mystery in your mind. Um, I find it interesting that this came out around when um, Robert Downey Jr. was making his comeback um, because because of, you know, you obviously have to be very selective in your choice in movies when you are trying to make kind of bring back your image, make yourself taken seriously while also making people fall in love with you again. Um, so yeah, this that really intrigues me. Um, I'm sad that I haven't seen it. I did not know it was Fincher. Mm-hmm. I did not know it was Fincher who made this movie. And that, you know, just adds to my excitement. Obviously he's one of our current, I don't know if I'd say masters, but definitely up there. He, he's one um, of my favorites. I think yeah. he, he's got such great commitment to everything that he does, almost to the point of where if it was revealed that David Fincher is the Zodiac killer, I would go, yeah, <laughs> like, I okay, believe that. Okay. Everything no, makes I, sense. And that that is true. I like that word commitment and thinking of his other films. And again, it's making me want to see this even more, but also not because I'm, I know I'll be terrified. Um, but there is that sense of, you know, he's all in, he's all in, right. He really wants to give you that full experience. And with something like this, where it is about a killer and finding that killer and you're coming along for the ride. And when it's a killer who has yet to be found, having that aspect of, you know, bringing you in fully to this story and then releasing you into a world where the killer is still at large 
that that's terrifying. That really is terrifying. I, I think the other reason why this movie works so well is that there there's really only a couple scenes that are kind of built to be the scary moments, uh, like the one I mentioned. I think the reason why it works is because it basically takes place in Jake Gyllenhaal's head as far as the psychological elements. Uh, we're trapped in there because we're, we're trying to make sense of all these cryptic clues that the killer is leaving. And, you know, you start trying to think like how Jake Gyllenhaal is and you're starting to feel like maybe you're some sort of savant or something and it just all gets up in your head. And, and that's sort of where the tension builds and it gets frustrating at times. Uh, and then it also sort of, works because when this movie takes place in the 1970s there's a bit of a technological gap and there's moments where you know they're trying to call someone on a payphone where they know they are and it's just like oh my gosh why doesn't he have a cell phone of course cell phones <laughs> don't exist this would solve all the issues or maybe you know don't go into the scary building late at night wait till the morning you're a reporter you should know this you're tracking down a killer we're like Be it's smarter sort- yeah where it sort of like throws the tropes in your face of someone going into a dark ho- empty alleyway at night when you know they shouldn't and so it sort of plays on those notions of well what is going to happen when this character very clearly breaks what is uh, a horror trope sort of thing and i think david fincher does that quite well fincher is definitely one of my my favorite directors and i think he tried to replicate the feeling of uneasiness that he had in this film with gone girl which i think was a pretty good film but it doesn't come anywhere near to the level of uh of perfection that zodiac does yeah, and I think that that's really it's smart when someone can um can self-acknowledge the tropes, right? I think when you can play with that in a more a more subtle way where it's not kind of an overt parody of like or satire where you're like, "Hey, there's other tropes," but using it in a way that does create suspense and does create that frustration without necessarily making you think, "Oh, this is stupid. Obviously, I wouldn't do that." Um but more so brings you into the moment and and it is, and I think it is, it is smart that because it, it is a story, you know, in a time period where you wouldn't be able to have these things. But as these things are so new introduced to us, you know, that's what we're holding on to. So it's like you said, you're like, why aren't you using the cell phone? Um, and so I do think the playing to these tropes is really effective. Um, yeah, I like Gone Girl. I thought Gone Girl was was quite well done. But I'm interested, especially because you know, Gone Girl is kind of this big lead up to who who it really is, um, who this person is, who, you know, seemingly got rid of or killed this woman. Um, and the movie is relies so heavily on playing mind games, playing with your head. So this being a similar film, also by Fincher, where it's all about getting in your mind and playing those tricks, it makes me really want to see it because he is a master of the mind game. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, so I think we have a really good selection of wide variety of what you're maybe looking to see. So, you know, if you have some some ideas of what you want to watch, make sure uh, you send them our way as well. Um, so uh, thank you so much for joining me this week, Rachel. It's been a real pleasure. The pleasure has been all mine. Where can, uh, where can our listeners find you if they want to bug you on social media? I'm actually a bit of a social media hermit crab i'm not on it much but you can follow me at um live in limbo you can follow my writings there and i will 
probably be writing a bit more about film so you can follow my writings about film and perhaps i'll pop up on the podcast someday again absolutely i would love to have you back um make sure you check out uh liveandlimbo.com where the show notes are going to be there's going to be links to all of the movies that we talked about in a nice clear even list uh and make sure you follow at live and limbo on twitter you can follow myself at dgapa uh and please subscribe and rate and review the podcast on itunes that would mean a ton So once again, thank you so much for joining me this week, Rachel, and I hope you all enjoyed this. Take care.